Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast. We are very excited today to be joined by Bob Benny. I've known Bob for a long time, at least since I was 18, and I'm not 18 anymore. <laughs> and he is a commercial beekeeper up in Lakemont, Georgia, where he runs Blue Ridge Honey Company. If you listen to this podcast, that means by default, you like social media. And if you like social media and honeybees, you probably know of Bob. Bob, I knew him as a commercial beekeeper, but he is now a social media influencer. Bob, what do you think about that term? <laughs> well, influencer, that, that's a stunning phrase. I never thought it would be that, but uh, that's what people are telling me now. So I guess I would have to accept it and buy into it <laughs> well well we're very grateful to have you on this podcast like i said you and i go way back but the but the yeah. listeners don't know that so i'm just going to ask you the first softball question to, to okay. let them discover you and that's tell us a little bit bob about how you got into your beekeeping journey and how you ended up where you are well i actually just read a book and got excited about it and that was a long time ago i think the year was probably 1978 i was living in alaska at the time I was living in the bush and had a lot of time on my hands in the winter. And I, I read a book called How to Keep Bees and Sell Honey by Walter T. Kelly. I must have read it three or four times. And I thought, this, this sounds like it's for me. So I mail ordered some of the big books that you would recognize, like Hive and the Honey Bee, ABC, XYZ. By the end of the winter, I'd read four or five uh, substantial books. I was absolutely convinced I wanted to make my living at beekeeping, and I never even stuck my finger in a beehive. And eventually I found my way down back into the lower states and settled in southern Oregon and got a job with a commercial beekeeper, and uh, that really set me on my path. That was a tremendous experience, and in fact, so I don't forget, if anybody's thinking of getting seriously involved in beekeeping for a living, it's probably really good advice to uh, try to work for somebody that's already making their living at it. It can help you kind of avoid some of the pitfalls that come along the way when you're growing an outfit from scratch. So that was, uh, and then in Southern Oregon, and it was all about pollination on the West Coast. Uh, this man I worked for uh, right away, I helped him move bees down into California for almond pollination. And then we came back home to Southern Oregon and pollinated pears. And then on to Washington State on the east side of the Cascades, a little town called Chelan where we pollinated apples, and then on to North Dakota for honey production. And I did that with him for three years while I was building my own smaller outfit on the side. And after three years, I quit him and went out full time on my own. And I just stayed in California and Oregon, still concentrating on pollination, but uh, not, you know, not traveling like he did. Um, for me in the, on the West Coast, I'd say three quarters of my income came from pollination and 25% probably came from honey production and sales. Whereas when I moved to Georgia, it was a complete flip-flop out here. It's about making honey, selling honey, 
little bit of pollination, which I've given up on completely now. I don't do any pollination. And then, of course, uh, eventually I got into honey packing and selling bees and and uh, quite a few things, actually. So that that's my journey in a nutshell. Of course, there's a lot more to it than that, but that, that's the short version. Well, my next question was going to ask you, let's get more into it. So tell us a little bit more about your operation. You know, I know that we were talking off air just about all the things that you do. And we were kind of joking saying, you know, what are you, you were saying, what are you going to do in the winter time? Do you just go on vacation for a couple of months, but let's talk about your operation and tell us, you know, what parts of the industry do you participate in? Um, And let's delve into that a little bit more. Okay. Well, in the early days of my life in Georgia, I did pollinate. I pollinated in South Georgia and sent bees to California and did all of that sort of stuff. But eventually, um, I got away from it because I felt like it was hard on the bees and kind of got in the way of doing the things I really wanted to do, which grow, which was grow bees and sell bees. Um, whenever people ask me what's important you know, why are you successful in the bee business? And what would you recommend to somebody that's new? And my first response is to, is to be diversified. Don't put all of your income eggs in one basket. So right now we've got four or five things going on. So we, we produce honey. We have a retail store. We buy lots of honey from other beekeepers and which makes us a producer packer. Um, we're selling bees. Um, we we're, we have a kind of a, not a very good website, but we do have a website. We're working on that. We're trying to get a world-class website up, which I think is going to tremendously increase our retail trade. So, you know, I've got about four irons in the fire and I think that's really important for beekeepers to understand. They need to be doing more than one thing in case one thing fails and they, the other things can kind of help them ride the wave into the next season. For instance, if you're just counting on honey production, that's really a mistake unless you have a lot of money to back you up and you're able to, you know, uh, look at the 10 year average, so to speak, because there will be bad years. And if you don't have the money to back you up, you will fail. So if you have, say, a good retail trade, maybe on a smaller level, you're making a value added products with your honey or perhaps lots of candles or something, you just got to be doing something besides just producing honey. Of course, a lot of large commercial beekeepers, you know, approach that uh, that point by pollinating in a very big way, and uh, that that works for them. That that's two irons in the fire, I guess. The pollination can keep you floating if it's a bad honey production year, or vice versa. Um, I've chosen to get away from pollination just for personal reasons. I don't like what it does to the bees. Uh, I'm, I'm be- <laughs> Jamie. The more I learn about old comb and the toxic interactions that are occurring in our comb, the more I want to stay as far away from agriculture as I can. I think you can probably understand that. Um, the more I learn, the scarier it is. And and that, that's a kind of a bad direction that our country and our beekeeping industry is going in is this chemical exposure. I don't have an answer to it. I just know I want to stay away from it. Sounds like you've got a lot going on, and I know that you have a ton planned for your business as well. Yeah, we do. Our, our, I'm actually decreasing my colony numbers. At one time, I peaked out at about 2,800 colonies, and we kind of settled down to 2,000 for several years, and right now we've got about 1,600. That feels pretty like a pretty good number to me right now. 
uh, because I have all of these things that I'm involved in. And honestly, it's the retail store or the business headquarters. That building is, there's so much going on there. You know, theoretically, I'm the manager. So I have to be present at least some of the time. And if the beekeeping is too big, then I can't at least give a little bit of time to the rest of the business. So we kind of shrunk our beak. 1,600 colonies is still plenty. Right. But it's, it's nothing like 2,800. And of course, I used to have more people working for me. You know, that old adage, you know, uh, good help is hard to find. It's especially true in beekeeping because not everybody wants to work hard and get stung at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, really, you got you got to find somebody that's interested or passionate about bees, and if they don't have that, it's kind of hard to to get them to stick. Um, the people I have for me with me right now are are all interested in beekeeping, and they wouldn't want to do anything else. But I've been through a lot of employees that come, and you know, it doesn't take very long before they leave because it's just not for them. I have no judgment on that. I get it. Beekeeping is absolutely not for everybody. It, it's you got to be a specialized human being to want to be a commercial beekeeper. So I'm interested actually in, in knowing, you know, how many employees you have and how many do you think is, you know, a good, um, a good amount of employees to have for a certain amount of colonies. So, you know, would you say that over a thousand colonies, you would need this many people or over 2000 colonies, you would need this many people. Well, like everything in beekeeping, there's always an equation and parts of the equation can change. Um, if you're just running for honey production, I think one person can probably run 500 colonies just fine and do their own extracting. If you increase that to pollination, you know, and uh, making splits and making packages and doing a lot of the other aspects of beekeeping, then you know, probably need more than one person per 500. And just like any industry, the the more employees, you know, and Jamie can probably re report on this, when a colony doubles in size, it becomes 2.5 times as efficient. And so does a beekeeping outfit. As you get more and more employees, you can run more colonies per person because you become more efficient. So right now I've got 21 employees, but they're not all employed in the beekeeping. We have three beekeepers along with myself that where we're currently running the 1600 colonies. Now keep in mind, we're gonna make a bunch of packages and nukes and we'll sell colonies in the fall and rebuild them in the spring. So we're, we got a lot more going in on in our outfit that maybe some people do. Um, a thousand to 1500 colonies can easily be run by two people if you're not getting too, too many irons in the fire. And uh, the reason we have so many employees is that we pack a lot of honey. Um, you know, I said we have 1600 colonies. We packed one and a half million pounds of honey last year. Obviously, we wow. didn't produce all that. We probably produced around 100,000 pounds last year. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. And so we have uh, four, actually five full-time people that are running the packing part of my operation. We have two or three guys in the warehouse. We have four girls that work in the retail store. We have a full-time bookkeeper. Um, that's, that's the way my business is. If it was just beekeeping and that's all you were doing, um, you know, two people could run a thousand colonies pretty easy. 
I have a friend down in Florida. You actually probably know him, Jamie, John Knox there. It's, there's just three people running 3,500 colonies there. And sometimes he gets up to 45. And so, uh, but, but all he does is produce honey and occasionally send a couple of those to California. So it really just depends on what you're doing. You know, that, that will dictate how many people it takes to run a certain amount of bees. So, Bob, I met you. I was just thinking while you, while you were chatting about that again, when I was around 18, so that's 25, 27 or so years ago. And I remember at the time, I, if I if I remember correctly, it was just you. You might have had a seasonal employee here or there and you were managing, if I remember correctly, around 700,000 colleagues, maybe. And I remember having this very conversation with you about the number of employees it would take to manage so many colonies. Mm -hmm. I also remember you kind of expanding into packing and you you had all of that going in your extraction and packing facility in the basement of your home and I knew you were starting to sell nukes and things like that so be before I segue to a completely different aspect of what you do as a beekeeper a commercial beekeeper I'm curious which of the things do you like best do you like making bees best do you like making honey best do you like the packing part best and the appropriate answer is not all the above <laughs> I, I realize that you have to do all the above for diversification yeah. sakes but sake but what what really just makes you happy when you're doing it well i'll start off by saying you got a pretty good memory because you nailed those numbers i yep. was running 500 to 700 by myself and 700 for actually proved to be a bit too much i was working too hard and so i backed it on down to about 500 and then around the time i met you i was starting to sell nukes and i really fell in love with uh uh, making bees and selling them, not just shaking packages, but actually making nukes, making a fine quality nuke and actually uh, selling colonies and producing new colonies. I really like splitting and creating new colonies of bees. Of everything I do, I think that's probably my favorite. And now these days, of course, we're raising our own queens and we're putting our own cells and all of this stuff. And I, I really like that aspect of the business more than packing or retail or even honey production, honestly. It's funny. I think that's I think that would be my favorite as well. Just making yeah. colonies is just really attractive. Now you live in an area that's got amazing honey, though. Right? The premium crop there is sourwood. So yeah. I know producing that probably never gets old. <laughs> no, no, it's uh it's a very valuable crop. This year, when I was buying wildflower honey out of places like Florida and South Georgia, I was paying an average price of about $285 a pound. I think the going price was $275 when the dust settled. I always pay a little more so the people I buy from want to sell to me and, and they feel like I'm treating them right. Whereas sourwood would have been worth $650 a pound in a drum. So that's quite a difference. And that's what makes sourwood production so attractive and if it wasn't that much money it wouldn't be so attractive because it, there's you just don't have that many really great years when it comes to sourwood the trees always bloom the potential's always there but up in this area of course the potential for rain in july is is pretty great we live in one of the top five wettest counties in the in the usa as far as the lower 48 goes we've been averaging 80 to 120 inches of rain every year for a while now. And a lot of it, believe it or not, comes in the summer in the, in the form of thunderstorms and then also these hurricane things coming up out of the Gulf of Mexico. And so often we're staged, the bees are great, the trees are great, conditions are great for sourwood production in July, and then it just rains for three weeks and it messes us up. So 
Um, that, that's part of riding the wave again. If you were uh, counting on just sourwood production, it would really be precarious. But when you hit it, it's quite valuable. Um, so two years ago, we made 90 drums. Well, just uh, 90 drums times 650 pounds a drum times 650 a pound. You can do the math. It's a lot of money. And then if we're able to sell it wholesale cases or perhaps retail in the store, the value goes way up to, you know, maybe $10, pound, $10 a pound or more. So that much sourwood honey suddenly is a pretty tremendous shot in the arm. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing, truly amazing honey. And it's always fun that when I was able to visit you up in the mountains and see you guys at it. Now, what I really want to do is kind of segue a little bit away from the beekeeping per se, where, where the next thing we're going to talk to you about, you're not necessarily out physically working bees, but Bob, you've become a social media star. I mean, you, you, you've yeah. always been a beekeeping educator. I saw you as a, as a young beekeeper myself, giving lectures at the Georgia Beekeepers Association meeting and other meetings around the U.S., but you recently branched out into having a YouTube presence, and my gosh, it has blown up under your feet. You have a substantial YouTube channel, so if we can focus a little bit about your contributions to beekeeper education, starting kind of where you were giving talks and then kind of where you ended up now as this YouTube channel. I know our listeners would love to hear the evolution of your, your impact in education. Okay. Well, it really has been a surprise and I'm, and this is not a self-deprecating statement. I just understand myself and I know what I'm like. I'm not a sophisticated speaker and I'm certainly not a sophisticated video maker, but uh, I think it's just a case of, of, I think I kind of sort of know what I'm talking about and people respond to that. And I also always try to be a nice person. And I think people respond to that too. And uh, we started, you know, we used to get a lot of people coming into our store asking about how we made candles. And the girl that was doing it for me at that time, her name was uh, Pamela. She was really good at it. And she was, had a very nice demeanor, a nice personality. And I thought, well, I'm going to, let's, I asked her if it was okay, and she said, yes, we made a video on making candles, and it actually, that's to this date, it's still our most successful video. It's, I don't know, it's 600,000 views or maybe more. I really don't pay attention to it, and when I saw that, I thought, I, kind of a light bulb moment, I thought, well, perhaps I could do something too, and uh, so that kind of led me further into video making. And actually, if I go back in time a little bit before that, I was speaking to a was a symposium on medium and small size packers up at Medina, Medina, Ohio, for um, the Bee Culture magazine. Kim Flottam was the editor at that time, and he asked me to come up and be a part of a group of speakers. And we were having dinner the last night. Kim was a very good, uh, very nice host. And he was purchasing dinner for all of us in a nice Chinese restaurant. And I was sitting right across from him at a table. And I was very politely critical of his magazine. I wasn't trying to be rude. I just was pointing out something, a flaw that I thought there was in his magazine. And I told him that... Uh, uh, personally, I like to read and see more of the nuts and bolts types of articles, you know, where beekeepers are really telling how they do things and not necessarily um, 
you know, how they do it in Africa, or I taught my first swarm, those kind of articles, which have value. And you know, I'm not trying to put them down, but I like the real part of beekeeping type of articles, which you're good at that, Jamie. You're... Uh, your question and answer thing is tremendous because you're getting right down to the nuts and bolts when you're talking about that stuff. And Kim thought for a moment, he didn't take it personal. I didn't mean it personal. He thought for a moment, he got quite kind of quiet and then he leaned way across the table and looked me right straight in the eyes. And he said, the problem is the people who are doing it aren't writing about doing it. And I know what he meant. And I, I had to think about that at the motel that night. And it was really meant for me I was being totally hypocritical. There I was being critical of his magazine because he wasn't talking about real beekeeping enough. And I realized that I was chastising him, but not contributing at all. So totally hypocritical. And right then and there, I thought I would write a few articles for him. And I did, and they turned out good. And then uh, I also saw this Ian Stepler guy up in Canada doing some videos. One of my employees came and said, you should watch this guy. He's feeding his bees just like we do. And I watched his video. And then I had another light bulb moment. I thought, you know what? I, I could do this. Like writing was painful more for me, Jamie. I'm not like you. I, if I write an article, it takes me a month of editing and spell checking and all of that stuff. And, and then I have to have somebody else look at it to make sure I didn't screw it up too badly. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll try the videos. And I did that video with Pamela and it just, it just happened. I just stepped into it kind of by accident and it took off at a very surprising pace. I was kind of shocked at what happened. And the comments started to come in and I've always tried to take the time to answer the comments, answer the questions. And I think people responded to that too. Um, honestly, it's shocking. I'm still kind of not really not used to it. Um, I was in Paducah, Kentucky a while back and coming out of a Mexican restaurant and a guy walked, I was going out and another guy was coming in and he said, you're Bob Denny. And I thought, yeah, do I know you? <laughs> and he says, well, yeah, I've seen you on YouTube. And I th that's when it really drove home. It's like, my gosh, I'm two states away from home and somebody knows who I am. It was just incredible. You've arrived, Bob. You've arrived. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, that's one way of looking at it. It's still a shock. I still, I'm learning to try to, to accept it, to embrace it and be gracious. At first, when somebody would come in the store and say, you're Bob Benny, I watch all your videos. Oh, how great they are. And you're great. And I, I wanted to, my answers were always, you know, self-deprecating, like, oh, you know, no, I'm not really that good or something. And I've learned to not do that. I've had my wife was the one that said, you got to stop that. You got to just start being gracious. And I'm I'm learning to do that where I just try to be nice as I can and, and just accept it. But it's still very foreign to me. I got to tell you. Well, Bob, I'm, I've, I've looked at your YouTube video, you know, I've watched a couple of your videos and I just, I just love what you do. You know, you're real, you sit there and you have so many different guests. Um, I'm wondering about the logistics of it. So how often are you doing videos? You know, um, how often do you record? How, how has this YouTube channel uh, kind of taken over your business? So what has the YouTube channel done for your business? You know, how much time do you actually put into this channel? Sounds like a two-pronged question, so I'll give you <laughs> Yeah. Well, first of all, I only probably average one a week, sometimes a little less. I try to put a video out every Sunday morning at 7.30, 
And uh, that I've learned that if people know, maybe you do the same with your podcast, I don't know, but if people know exactly when it's going to come out, that you get uh, a better response. And the YouTube algorithm recognizes that if a video comes out and it gets uh, it gets clicked on a lot, they will promote it. You know, and I learned that by watching a YouTube video, actually. So I learned to be predictable. And so for the first eight or 24 hours of my video, I get a lot of clicks and then YouTube will promote it because they see that happening. And that's been quite helpful. And in order to do that, sometimes at the last minute, I'm just conjuring something up. Uh, some of my best videos have just been done at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, honestly. And uh, I'm always watching, always thinking. That was part of my visit to see Jamie a few years ago. I knew that would be a good interview, and it was. It still gets a pretty good response, even though it's an older video. And they, everywhere I go, uh, if I think I'm going to have an opportunity to do anything for YouTube, the camera's in the truck. We take it with us to the bee yards, and sometimes we'll just stop right in the middle of their work, the work we're doing, because I recognize an opportunity for a learning moment. We'll just get the camera out and do it. And then a lot of times I go to bee clubs and do lectures, and you might see that some of my videos are just me lecturing to a bee club. One of my very best videos was just put out uh, a few days ago with Keith, Jamie. I went over to the bee lab there and uh, asked him about his old subject, polyandry. Well, I didn't, I, I, I knew he would be good and I knew that there would be good information, but I did not expect the video to get very many views because of the subject matter. And I was correct. Uh, it was a 40, 41 minute video and the average click-through rate was much lower than my average. I wasn't surprised by that. I expected it. But then within 24 hours out of over 150 videos that I have out there, I saw the number come back as the second most viewed video I've ever had in the first 24 hours. Well, this didn't make sense to me at all. And uh, so I went back and analyzed where the views were coming from. And this is a huge number that I'm about to give you. 38% of the views on that video were coming from sources other than YouTube. What that means is that people were sharing the link with other people. And as you know, that's a sign of a really good video when people share it that much. And uh, I just lucked into that one. And, and Keith was the star of that, of course. I just asked him questions like you're asking me and he would he would answer and it just turned out to be a tremendous video. So sometimes the very best videos come from a place you least expect. So Bob, that's really an amazing story. Listening to you talk about how you, like I said earlier, became a social media influencer and just the number of folks you're able to educate that way. It's been really impressive and that you do all that on top of your other responsibilities of making honey and making nukes and packing honey and all the other business things you have to deal with. Mm. So, so given your really broad experience and your time in the industry and 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 how well you know the industry, I, as we wind down this interview, I'm curious, what are what do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing beekeeping and beekeepers in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, of course, there's always public enemy number one. Probably don't even have to bring that one up. Varroa mites. Um, challenges for the beekeeping industry. I think chemicals. I think uh, uh, the, the toxic 
uh, landscape that the bees are constantly running into. I think that's becoming a greater and a greater problem. I'm learning more about the synergistic, toxic synergistic interactions that the bees are experiencing because of the different of the array of chemicals they're running into and what chemicals already exist in the comb back home in their colony. I think that's a challenge that's getting more and more prominent in our industry. I know a lot of commercial beekeepers, obviously, and I keep hearing, you know, complaints about them having a hard time keeping my bees alive. And, you know, I don't get it. Why are the queens being superseded so quickly? And I really think it comes down to chemicals and old comb and, and agriculture. And that's why I've chosen to stay as far away from agriculture as I can. I think my bees are much better off for it. And uh, I sleep better at night, not worrying about my bees crashing, crashing for some unforeseen reason. Um, I'm sure you guys are getting exposed to a lot of those types of questions down there too. Uh, I, I honestly think, except for varroa mite, of course, I think that's the biggest challenge we, fa we face is the chemicals that the bees are always being exposed to. They're like a canary in the, in the, in the coal mine, but I honestly think they're more sensitive than the canary. They, they really succumb to this stuff much more easily than people think. So Bob, you've been able to interview a lot of different people around the world. You've been able to meet and connect and work with all different aspects of the industry. And so my question for you is, what excites you most about the industry? What excites me most about the industry? I'll tell you what's exciting, and this is unexpected. In the last few years, I, I believe I'm seeing an influx of newer, younger beekeepers you know, quite often you'll go to a meeting and there's kind of a joke that when you look across the room, all you see is gray hairs. Well, here recently, I'm seeing some young people getting excited and not only interested in having a few beehives, but, you know, looking at it like it might be something they want to do for a living. And, and that's exciting to me. It's, it's kind of reassuring that maybe this industry won't fade away uh, because of a lack of interest or a lack of, honestly, a lack of people willing to do the hard work because, as we know, a lot of folks, a lot of young people want to kind of sit behind a desk or work from home, work on their computer, and they're really not interested in getting out there in, in the trenches, so to speak, and doing that type of work. So it's exciting to me that I think that I think there's hope for the industry to actually stay viable and stay alive. Yeah, you know, when I was looking at your YouTube channel, I clicked on a video about one of your employees getting a new tattoo. And that video yeah. made me laugh out loud. It was so funny. And it was just a quick, you know, minute and a half. Yeah, It's a very quick clip. And I just thought it was so funny. But, you know, then I was reading the comments and how, you know, that was just like, it, people were talking about how the younger generation, you know, yeah. are getting B tattoos, etc. So I, I just, I thought that was pretty funny. It was, I, you know, I, my reaction, the way my reaction seemed on the video was not actually a good representation of what I was feeling. I was surprised and I was interested and I used the word, well, that's interesting. And a lot of the, a lot of the comments I got were, were like, I don't think Bob's approves because <laughs> I wasn't really excited. I was just, I just found it very interesting. And I was intrigued with the idea that somebody would use their whole arm to put a beekeeping scene on. So yeah, it was very, it was very interesting. <laughs> Well, Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure to be able to interview you on this podcast. I mean, I've 
I haven't said this yet, but I remember when I was working with you, you know, almost 30 years ago, gosh, it's hard to believe, but you had the, the nicest hive boxes, the best kept frames, the cleanest apiaries of anybody I've ever worked with. And I kind of said to myself at that time, this guy takes it serious. He, he not only cares about doing it right, but he's very caring and interested in the bees. And I think that's even reflected in the conversation that we've had in this interview today. So I just thank you for joining us. And I'm excited yeah. for all of the accomplishments that you've made and how, how, how big your business has grown and how well you run it. And it's just been really a pleasure to be able to have you on today's episode. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we don't see each other. You're, you are one of those, you know, in the beekeeping industry, we have all these friends that we don't see very often. And you're <laughs> one of those people for me, when we see each other three years later or something, it'd be just like old friends, that, mm -hmm. like we saw each other last week. And I look forward to the next time I see you. And Amy, it was a pleasure meeting you on, on the screen online. And I look forward to meeting you someday too. I can't wait. All right, cool. If I get to Florida, I'll be giving you a call. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> Thank you. So Jamie, you know, I'm, I watch Bob Benny's videos and I, his voice is just so soothing. He's just so calm. He's so cool. I, I want to be him when I grow up. You know, Amy, Bob is a good human. I've known yeah. him now almost three decades, right? Somewhere between 25, 30 years. And he's just good. He's always been that way. Very even kilter. And I remember one of the near quotes that he said, you know, I like one of the things I th reasons that he said his videos are potentially so appealing. He just tries to be nice. That, <laughs> Imagine that being nice in the, today's world. And it seems to really work for him. But I don't think he's trying. I think he's just genuinely a good human, a good soul. I, I saw it from my years with him. I've since heard it with folks who are who've worked with him. And you can, of course, see it come through in his desire just to put education out there for beekeepers. Yeah, I think, you know, this is like my call to the audience to let them know, like, let's make a shirt with Bob Benny's face on it. And it just says, <laughs> just tell the truth and be nice. <laughs> hey, is, know, Bob Benny, is Bob Benny the Bob Ross of the B world? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I think he is. Oh, uh, that's he's so a great, funny. But, but again, he's just, it's, it's genuine. You know, what he does is genuine. He is genuinely a good beekeeper. He genuinely mm -hmm. cares about the bees. He genuinely cares about the products he, he produces. He genuinely cares about his customers. He genuinely cares about other beekeepers to the point that he wants to educate them through his YouTube channel. And, and I think it's really paying big dividends for him. I mean, he's obviously wildly successful be a really good folk uh, and a beekeeper to model yourself and your business after. And I'm sure he shares some things today that are beneficial to all of our listeners out there around the world. I would encourage our listeners to go and take a look at his YouTube channel. So we'll be sure to add it into our additional notes and resources on our website. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Hey everybody, welcome back to the question and answer time. Jamie, I'm super excited for our questions today. Okay. I've been receiving these questions quite a bit in the past couple of weeks, so figured we'd go ahead and answer them on air. So the first question we have, so this person recently split their hives. Everything was successful. It was all good. Now the colonies are growing again. They're becoming overcrowded again. Would it be more productive to add another deep or should they split it again? 
I love this question. And the reason I do is because I cannot possibly give a right answer to it because it's a hundred percent opinion. It's completely up to the beekeeper. So mm -hmm. Amy, we'll provide a little bit of background. I don't know for sure when this question came in, but it's April, kind of middle April right now that we're answering. So I presume it probably came in in the last month. So if that's true, then this is the time of year, at least in the Northern hemisphere, that colonies are absolutely growing. Usually most major nectar flow and pollen flows are starting maybe late March and really going strong into April. So this beekeeper has split some hives. They were successful. So these hives, the colonies in those hives are growing and now they're becoming overcrowded. Well, they're probably becoming overcrowded because the questioner was feeding them or because of all the bountiful resources available in the environment. So the ultimate question is, do I add more brood space? Or do I give them another brood box to let them lay more eggs or do I split them again? Well, mm -hmm. the answer is, is that all depends on the answer to this question. Do you want more colonies or do you want to stay where you are? If you want more colonies, man, take advantage of this. There's a lot of incoming nectar and pollen still to be had. I mean, we're only the first third of April. There's a lot more opportunity for your bees to be bringing in nectar and pollen over the course of the rest of April and through May. And if your colonies are really growing, another split will allow you to have even more colonies. You know, just keep in mind, if you split specifically this time of year, you're kind of sacrificing honey production in those colonies that you split, but maybe that's not of interest to you. Maybe you just simply want more colonies, in which case I would strongly advocate splitting. It's a great, great, great time of year to split. But if you don't want a single extra colony, you're happy where you are, you can either add another brood, brood box for them to continue to having more space, or you can add honey supers and let them produce honey. You know, it all depends on too, the configuration of the hive you run. I, I personally don't like running double deeps. They're, it's just not how I manage bees. And so maybe you don't want a double deep brood chamber. Maybe you only want a single deep, but it's, it's really up to you at this point. Another option for you that I just kind of thought about while I was answering questions is maybe you split because you want to sell those splits to other beekeepers. Maybe you're happy where you are with the number of colonies, but you can see splitting and selling those split, splits as another source of income. So really all the options are on the table and it's completely up to you. And the, the answer to the question, do you want more bees or not? Or do you want bees to sell or not? And, and how you answer those questions dictate your beekeeping response. But I will tell you, it's a great time of year to split. I think you're seeing that. And I think your question just you know, exemplifies the fact that when resources are coming in and colonies are growing, it's it's a good time of year to split, make increases or produce colonies that are available for sale. Yeah, absolutely. I went to a, I, I had a public speaking engagement last week with some new beekeepers. And it was funny because I made the comment, I was like, just be careful. It's a slippery slope. And there, I, I think most of the beekeepers in that room totally agreed with me. They were like, yep, it is. I'm like, pretty soon you started with two, you're going to end up with four, you're going to have eight and it's going to keep going. So, you know, you've got to determine for yourself when to stop. Yeah, Amy, it's like 248, then 1,264, right? There's like no exactly. gap. It's like once you, get, once you hit that critical threshold, you can't get enough. It's kind of bee fever, right? <laughs> right. Okay, so for the second question we have, this person is asking, what is the best way to assist our bees during periods of drought? Can bees, this? I like this second question, can bees hear the stress of plants? You know, plants Ooh, so, speak to each other, right? Good questions. Well, you know, there there is some research literature suggests that plants are able to communicate with one another, often through the production of specific chemicals. It's it's not like the way honeybees communicate through pheromones, but there can be stress 
compounds and things like that that can cause that can increase or slow the development of other plants in the neighboring area. But to answer the second question first, can bees hear stress in plants? There's currently no evidence that bees can detect stress plants. Now, I'm going to throw that out with this big, huge caveat, which is science and biology are always amazing to me. So I wouldn't be surprised if someday there, there wasn't research to show that bees can detect stressed plants and either avoid them purposely or utilize them purposely, depending on you know, how that benefits the bees. But to my knowledge, there's no research at the moment on the ability of bees to be able to perceive trouble or stress in plants. So the question then, the first question was, well, can we assist bees in times of drought? Well, I would stress that as long as bees have adequate honey or nectar reserves and good access to water, then they can take care of themselves during drought. If for some reason their honey reserves plummet, then you are going to have to feed. Or if for some reason you don't have adequate access, give your bees adequate access to water, then you're going to have to provide it for them. So the two biggest stressors in drought times are inadequate food reserves, right? Because if it's a drought, then you don't have nectiferous or, or pollen bearing plants out there in the environment. So bees don't have that resource coming in. So you might need to provide it if they're running out. And bees deal with drought, lack of water by needing water, right, to be able to thermoregulate the nest. So you may have to provide one or the other or both if it is a true drought. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of wonder, you know, with the stress of plants, I wonder if plants, when they start to stress, they don't produce, I don't know, I'm totally making this up. Maybe they don't produce like a quality nectar or pollen content and maybe bees avoid them altogether. Who knows? Um, yeah. I'm sure and, and there's something, right? Yeah, I mean, you're 100% right about that. If if plants are truly suffering from drought stress, they may produce significantly less nectar or pollen, maybe something that, that's very useful for bees during you know periods of good rainfall is mm -hmm. terrible for bees in the absence of rainfall. So I don't know if bees can perceive it from as a from a plant stress perspective. They may perceive it simply from a this plant has resources for me or it doesn't. Right. But but again, I you know I, there's definitely evidence in the literature that suggests that some plants produce these secondary plant compounds in stress times or in times that they're being um, that the herbivory is high, for example. Here, I'm in South Africa, Amy, as I answer this question, right, I'm still on my two-month research trip, and I know that there are some plants around here that res respond to heavy herbivory by producing tannins that make mm -hmm. the plants less palatable to the things that are eating them. So, for example, if a giraffe is munching very heavily on a particular bush, that bush may produce a compound that causes the other bushes in the area to produce similar compounds that now make that not so palatable to giraffe. So there is definitely communication between plants. The question is, is do bees perceive that and right. do they cater their response to it? And I would say the jury's still out there. I just don't think it's a research topic, but it's certainly something that's possible. All right. So we have reached our third question and I feel like there's a lot of research and I'm sure there's always been research, but I feel like there's more up and coming research about drones lately. And so I think drones are at the top of many beekeepers minds. And so this kind of leads me into that third question. The person's wondering what, what drones look like as a result of allaying workers. And, you know, we know that laying workers typically lay multiple eggs in a cell. That's one of the signs that we see. Right. And so 
it, if there are multiple eggs that are laid in a cell, does one hatch and just kind of take over what happens to the other eggs? And are the drones smaller or not smaller? What, I mean, I have all these, these questions, but basically, can you just talk to us about drones as a result of laying workers and what we know about that? Yeah, this is an interesting series of questions. We know that workers, when, when colonies go hopelessly queenless, some of the workers in the nest, their ovaries can develop and they can begin to lay eggs. And since they cannot mate, they can only lay unfertilized eggs, which for most subspecies of honeybees result in male honeybees or drones. So laying workers produce drones. And the questioner asked specifically too about multiple eggs per cell. And that's because that is a condition of laying workers. Laying workers tend to be <laughs> so happy and excited that they're able to lay that they will often oviposit more than one egg in a cell. So one of the characteristic signs of laying worker uh, infestation, as it were, is you'll get lots of cells with multiple eggs in them. Okay. And all these eggs, of course, are unfertilized and are likely to result in drones. Now, to kind of go with the first question first, what do drones look like that are the result of laying workers? They look like drones. They are often smaller, and that is likely not due to the fact that they are produced by laying workers but it is likely due to the fact that the workers don't necessarily know they're laying drone eggs and they're laying them often in worker-sized cells. So the drones are developing in a smaller space and are correspondingly smaller. So it's, it's not that they couldn't be large, it's just that their environment prohibits that from happening. With that said, Research has shown that the drones are produced by laying workers are fertile. They, they are able to produce semen that's mobile and can fertilize eggs. I don't think they're appropriately represented at DCAs, drone congregation areas. You know, their small size and other factors may limit their success at DCAs, but nevertheless, they just look like small drones usually, and they are 100% fertile. Now, because there are multiple eggs per cell, how does only one drone end up in that cell? Well, that almost certainly has to do with the behaviors of the workers in the nest. It's not like one drone larva comes out of the egg first and eats his competition. They're not, they're not carnivores. What's far more likely to happen is that a worker will actually remove all but one of the eggs, or once the first egg hatches and there's a larva, she'll remove the rest of the eggs in that cell. So that is almost certainly worker controlled. So then the next question is, they, are they smaller? Uh, than normal being raised in smaller cells. That's exactly what happens when drones are raised in worker cells. They're certainly smaller. And so, yeah, those are great questions, very thoughtful, but but fortunately science has answers to those. And it's a really neat phenomenon that we see. And a lot of people think that the laying, the development of laying workers in colonies is basically a colony's last ditch attempt to get its genes out there before it dies, right? Because colonies headed by laying workers are doomed given that drones can't do anything in the nest except mate. And so it's probably a colony's last ditch attempt to just throw their genes out through any drones that they are able to develop and that are able to mate with queens successfully at drone congregation areas. Gosh, you know, I kind of wonder like all this talk about the drones and the quality of semen and whether they're able to actually mate or not. I, I'm sh Maybe someone has done this already, uh, but you know, I was thinking like, if you instrumentally inseminated a queen with worker laying drones, like what would the call the quality of that queen be, right? Like if she was inseminated with all worker laying drones, that'd be a pretty cool question. So that's good. That's really good thought, Amy. And I think that that's been done. It's just that I cannot remember the paper well enough to like answer that question, mm -hmm. but I think it's been done, which is 
what I believe is the basis for the idea that laying worker drones are fertile. We right. need maybe dig that up and, and bring it up in a good Q&A again in the future because it's a really fascinating topic. And, you know, you know, as I said a little earlier, I happen to be in South Africa at the moment answering this question. And here, the Cape honeybees laying workers don't produce drones. Right. They usually produce females without mating. And that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for your questions, listeners. Don't forget to send us an email or send us a message on one of our social media pages. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at UF Honeybee Lab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Vu. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Vu and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.